something that we really emphasized in school was the number one goal of physical therapists is to increase the participation and function of their patients. And that's a pretty broad definition, but no matter what environment you're working in, an emergency room, somebody coming in with acute pain, somebody rehabilitating from a surgery, or somebody with a chronic degeneration of a spine, our goal is not to solve the actual problem, but to make sure that that person can interact with their world and get back to the things that they've been unable to do in whatever manner of fashion that is. And so that sort of broad definition really encompasses physical therapy as a whole. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back podcasting again. I try to get an episode out each month, and I actually skipped last month, which was the month of May, but at the same time, I also put out two episodes in April, so you'll have to forgive me. This is a fun mm, interprofessional episode with a physical therapist, Dr. Mark Anderson Nissen. I am Ross Tanik. I'm your host for Exploring the World of primary care medicine from the perspective of, well, myself, a medical student. And currently I'm studying for board exams in between my second and third year of school at Rocky Vista University, which is not all that much fun, but I am learning and relearning a lot, which I think is the goal. So before we get too deep into the show, I want to say that the podcast as well as myself as an individual, want to acknowledge the continued racial injustice and violence in this country and throughout the world. Obviously, racial inequality is certainly prevalent in medicine, and there are many ways in which the field of medicine and we as students and healthcare workers enable such inequality. So, I hope that we can all continue our education on the topic of racial bias and discrimination and not only be motivated by recent newsworthy events, but also be dedicated to continuous improvement with regards to bringing our country and our planet into a world of equality, justice, and of course, health. All right, next topic, I want to give a plug for the leaving a review feature on podcast playing apps. Some people who seem to be enjoying the show have been leaving super kind and thoughtful reviews for the podcast. Um, the the, The most recent of which I will read right now. It is entitled Brilliant Interviews. Ross asks the best questions, and the folks he interviews are so interesting and diverse. After every podcast, I feel like I understand the actual practice of medicine so much better. 
from what it's like to work with those addicted to narcotics to the difference between rotations and life as an employee. Always insightful. I also find myself with new questions that I take with me every time I offer care of any kind. I love this podcast. And that was written by D underscore 777. So thanks everyone for listening and thanks for leaving a review, D underscore 777. You little angel you, wherever you are. And also, if anyone is in the position of giving a lesson to my sweet mother on how to leave a review on her podcast app, please contact me because she's been trying to figure it out for some time now. Nice. Okay, let's get to the show here. This was a lovely interprofessional talk with Mark Anderson Nissen. He is a doctor of physical therapy graduating from the DPT, or Doctor of Physical Therapy Program, at the University of Colorado. Mark and I actually met in college, and we formed a bond and a friendship by playing guitars together, and we've been basically jamming ever since, writing and playing music together. And he's actually the one who's playing the super slick guitar riff on the theme music to this very show. So uh, dedicated listeners already have met Dr. Mark in a way. Um, Through this interview, I I think you'll find that he's clearly passionate about the human body and the practice of physical therapy. Um, When we talk, he usually blows my mind with his knowledge of human anatomy and treatments for physical ailments. Uh, However, in this podcast, we focus our discussion more on the symbiotic relationship between physical therapy and primary care. Uh, We talk about dealing with chronic pain, chronic disease, treatment, interprofessional communication between the professions, and many other topics that are relevant to both fields. Um, We also talk about some resources for people and preventive physical therapy practices. And I'll give you a spoiler alert right now. The way to keep your musculoskeletal system as healthy as possible is to stay active and keep moving in basically any safe way. But I will let him uh, say a lot more about that. Uh, You can find Dr. Mark at his practice's website, which is www.denverptis.com. And the company's name is Physical Therapy injury specialists. Um, so that's denverptis.com. And you can listen to him right here, right now. So let's rock out and let Dr. Mark Anderson Nissen play us in. Happy to be here uh, right next to Truth Be Told Studios in Truth Be Told Kitchen with my good friend and uh, future colleague, um, physical therapist, Dr. Mark Anderson Nissen. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Ross. Yeah, I'm uh, excited to get into some of these topics. So uh, 
let's just start with uh, you introducing yourself and talking about your background and uh, what people need to know about you. So I am a physical therapist working in a small outpatient practice in Denver, Colorado. We specialize in a lot of hands-on treatment, so we are what you know as a manual therapist. In our clinic, we've all gone through additional schooling after physical therapy school, and we've received our COMT training. So that means we have a certified orthopedic manual therapy certificate, and this is another two-plus years of intensive schooling for clinical reasoning, hands-on skills, and advanced treatment techniques for orthopedic patients. It's a small practice, and it's been essentially a type of family-run family business for a number of years now, which means we get to dictate a lot about how we see our patients. So we spend a lot of time doing one-on-one -on -one care, which is pretty atypical these days. Physical therapist gets you for 30 minutes, and then sometimes you can see an aid, but it gives us a lot of autonomy to practice how we want. And as a result, we end up seeing lots and lots of complicated patients. Yeah, I know you've told me, uh, you know, a bevy of uh, case presentations that you've had uh, over the years. Um, and then now you've went through the COMT training that you referred to. Mm -hmm. um, and you basically said that it was such an, you know, an intense training that you basically can feel very confident in manipulating um, or, you know, providing manual therapy for any joint in the body, which of which there's a lot. Um, but that's not true of everybody who comes out of PT school, um, you know, who doesn't go through that training. Sure. So I think one thing that happens is physical therapy school prepares its students to go into myriad avenues of work. So what you'll find is PTs work in many settings, outpatient orthopedics, um, with varying specialties, sports medicine, uh, surgical rehab, things like that. There's also home health physical therapists, physical therapists working in the hospital, uh, in acute and subacute settings as well, and then all the rehabilitation settings as well. And the school's job is to prepare you to go into any one of those environments and be able to work. So you have to know all your basics, the anatomy, the physiology, uh, all the safety stuff, and also um, how to do those jobs. So it's a more generalist degree. And then once you're out of school, you get a lot more specialized. Uh, that being said, at CU, where I went to school for PT, uh, we were taught by several manual therapy fellows, which is one of the highest levels of certification you can get in the field. Mm -hmm. So in that hands-on uh, arena, there was a lot of specific training to this. So we had a good step up in this world. Is that something you could do now with your training or you would need an extra set of certification? So my training is essentially like the, the introductory phase to this. It's the first in a series of uh, a five or six year study. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I know we're here to uh, kind of talk about physical therapy in your life and how it relates to primary care um, as a you know medical specialty. And we'll get into that for sure. But I think, uh, you know, even knowing you and, and I'm sure I am curious more about the differences and what exactly physical therapy is. I'm sure a lot of other people are as well. Um, but so what I take from what you were saying about how PT school trains you, not everybody who comes out of PT school or gets a doctorate in physical therapy is, um, certified or trained to do manual therapy. Is that true or? 
Uh, so currently, sort of. the the physical therapy programs have transitioned so that you have all the students graduating from here on out with doctor of physical therapy degrees, and the difference in that education means there's a lot more emphasis on understanding and reading and analyzing research and integrating evidence-based practice. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you were trained before with a master's or um, any uh, other degrees in the past that you didn't get good training, but now there's a more uh, clinical and um, evidence-based emphasis as we go. Well, yeah, no, so on that point, physical therapy used to just be a bachelor's level mm -hmm. um, degree. Right. And then it, at some point it became master's and then um, was it just like five or so years ago that it became a doctorate that you had to obtain a doctorate in physical therapy to be Correct. a physical therapist? Yeah, so it's transitioned to the, the doctor of physical therapy degree, and they've even added in a, um, a PhD in physical therapy if you wanted to go for additional studies now. Um, and so, yeah, coming out of school, you have this, this basic background, and then people can go off and specialize in whichever areas they're, they're interested in. Yeah, so what um, kinds of, what, what specialty are you in, and um, how does that work on like a day-to-day -day basis? Kind of patients do you see? Absolutely. What kind of... Uh, um, ailments DC. So uh, I work in um, an orthopedic practice, which is a pretty general uh, terminology for, for outpatient physical therapy. Um, what we tend to do is we treat more musculoskeletal conditions, and we also have a lot of patients with uh, chronic pain and chronic dysfunction. So what that means is we are often looking at how the whole system is working when we're analyzing how a person is moving and interacting with the world. Um, and we want to see if we can get them back to function, whatever that may be. So I'll treat in a day anybody from a runner who's hurt themselves to uh, an older individual who has some chronic degenerative joint pain to someone with a full spinal cord injury who needs some uh, management type care so that they can sleep at night or they can function better during their day. So it's really a broad spectrum. Uh, I think it's interesting when you mentioned the different disciplines that come out of physical therapy school, and it brings me back to some things we studied early on, and it comes with a question of how do you define what a physical therapist does, and I think people don't always have a good understanding of that, and I think even physical th therapists may not have a good understanding of that too. Mm -hmm. Something that we really emphasized in school was the number one goal of physical therapists is to increase the participation and function of their patients. And that's a pretty broad definition, but no matter what environment you're working in, an emergency room, somebody coming in with acute pain, somebody rehabilitating from a surgery, or somebody with a chronic degeneration of a spine, our goal is not to solve the actual problem, but to make sure that that person can interact with their world and get back to the things that they've been unable to do in whatever manner of fashion that is. And so that sort of broad definition really encompasses physical therapy as a whole. That's kind of a beautiful definition or a beautiful, um, you know, primary goal. It's to, would you say it again? It's to increase participation? And it's, it's, it's to emphasize the ability of the patients to, you know, participate in their lives, essentially. Yeah. We wanna, we wanna focus on participation and function and, and whatever capacity you have to do that. Yeah. Well, as an idealist, which I am, um, that sounds amazing. Why couldn't that be the number one goal of any kind of healthcare specialty or 
you know, individual in healthcare. Um, it's an empowering kind of philosophy just right off the bat. I like it. Um, I kind of wanted to ask, um, a little bit more about your training just because, uh, I'm curious. I know other people will be, how does, um, physical therapy school actually go down? Um, a lot of the people listening might be medical students who kind of get concept of medical school. You do your basic sciences for two years, learn about anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, pharmacology, all that stuff. Um, and then um, I know you also do a lot of that, probably not so much pharmacology, maybe a little bit more on the anatomy, but tell us how um, the it's about three years of school. Yeah, so to go to physical therapy school now, you have to have completed uh, your undergraduate degree uh, and have all the prerequisites. And when I was going through that myself, it ends up being essentially the same prerequisites no matter where you go in the medical field. So if you want to do physical therapy, PA, MD, it, it's all the same basic sciences going in, chemistry, mm-hmm. bio, physics, et cetera. Um, once you actually get into physical therapy school, there's a huge emphasis on building that foundation of knowledge. So the first year really is going through all sorts of basic sciences, basic anatomy, physiology, understanding medical conditions. And the way that we're trained is to really understand all these conditions, not from a diagnostic perspective, but more to understand what fits into the scope of physical therapy and what's something that's outside of the scope. So for instance, I don't need to identify all the diagnostic criteria for uh, a rheumatic disorder, for instance, if you come in. However, I need to understand what the symptomology is and if you fit a category that will not respond to certain types of treatment and if I need to refer you out to somebody else. So our job is not to make the diagnosis for the medical condition, uh, instead to make sure that you belong in the physical therapy clinic, and then we make that musculoskeletal diagnosis there. At CU, we were fortunate we had actually two times going through the anatomy lab and two sections of anatomy as well, so we got really well-versed in the human body and all the systems. Uh, And the way that they typically train you is you start out with a foundational knowledge, and then you start to go into clinic, and you spend... 30 plus weeks in clinic, but they space it out over that time. So you learn a little bit, you go into clinic under the tutelage of a practicing PT, at which point you start to engage with them and their patients and, you know, test your knowledge. And then you come back and you start to learn sort of the next level of, of things. And so now you start to become a little bit more specialized as a physical therapist, not just understanding general medical knowledge. And then you go back into clinic again, where you get to then start practicing and utilizing those skills. And the goal, of course, is you come out of school being able to jump into any job and be independent of function. Yeah, that's cool because you basically get to do two laps around the whole thing. You do your book learning and, you know, whatever other hands-on stuff. But then you're in clinic and then you go back and, you know, take another uh, pass at it. And then again with another clinical rotation type thing. Exactly. And so... uh, and every school does it a little bit differently, but there's a certain required amount of weeks of being in clinic. And that cyclical learning is really interesting for developing your understanding, knowledge, and skill set. And it's been a, it's a pretty good asset. It was interesting, too, especially you, Ross, going through DO school and talking about those initial 
years where we learn, you know, here's 8 million different diagnoses that exist and all the systems yep. and how much that initial learning overlaps. And then of course you guys dive way into the pharmacology of it, the pathophysiology, you know, the, the microbiology, but to have that initial ability to communicate about those disorders, I think is a really fundamental and, and important thing that they have integrated now into physical therapy and medical school training. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And it's a great transition to uh, kind of talking about um, what I want to talk about next, which is that interdisciplinary communication um, that you just referred to. Um, I know you interact with primary care physicians mainly by getting referrals from them and giving referrals to them. Is that is that accurate? So that's a primary way that it tends to work in, in our clinic. Now, in Colorado, we are what we call a direct access state, and this is something that a lot of patients haven't been educated on. I think a lot of providers haven't been educated on as well. If you are a patient with insurance that's not uh, Medicare or Medicaid, you can come directly to a physical therapy provider for uh, an injury or ailment without having to go get a referral source. So you can come directly to me. Mm -hmm. Commonly, though, people do end up visiting their primary care physicians first and then, you know, make that bridge over. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's the element of established care and, and the primary care physician, um, from what I've seen, sort of is the point guard in a lot of people's care so they can help direct whether or not they need to go to an orthopedic person, get imaging, come to a physical therapist. And oftentimes people don't even know physical therapy is an option until they go to their primary doctor. Mm -hmm. And so they are really a strong uh, advocate for what we do because they can help bridge that gap and send people over. Then of course we educate them and say, hey, if something like this comes up again, you can save yourself a step and even come to us in the future. And, and that can help people get better faster. Yeah, um, I think one of the challenges actually is um, if people come in, say, uh, something simple like an ankle sprain, what you'll find is you can often jump through a lot of hoops before you get to the person who can treat you. So if you went to an orthopedic person, a primary care person, throw in an, an emergency room visit if it was really bad, mm -hmm. it may be three or four weeks until you actually land in my office, at which point we're already behind the eight ball for helping you get better. Yeah. So there is a lot of value in sending patients in quickly to start the process of, of rehabilitation. Yeah. Um, man, I got a, a number of directions I want to go um, because um, you said that primary care in general is an advocate or, a, you know, is a, um, a, a source of referrals for you and, and an advocate for your profession. But is it I wonder if it's I'm trying to think here the best way to phrase it Are, on an individual level. Is it possible that primary care docs are just not that well equipped to or well trained to actually deal with things that maybe they could or should be able to, but they punt it to you guys because it's, Hey, you should see physical therapy for that. So that's a great question. And I think it comes back to a little bit of the philosophy of how we were trained in the PT world from a safety perspective we're looking to understand everything that's not in the realm of physical therapy treatment so that we can refer those patients out to other providers mm -hmm. and then to understand what's in our, uh, what's in our court to, to work on. And, and the way the system is set up is we should be the 
musculoskeletal experts. You have a joint or muscle dysfunction. Yeah. You should be seeing a physical therapist, period. Eventually, if you need more help, bring on orthopedics. If you need a surgical consult, things like that. Now, the way I, I look at it is it's a little bit reciprocal in the sense that if a patient's coming to a primary care physician, their job is to make sure that it's not a, a, a medical thing, right? So if they come in and see their primary care doc, the doc is screening them for disease or pathology or something acute like a fracture, at which point if they identify, hey, you're not in that category and this is a musculoskeletal thing, mm -hmm. physical therapy becomes the, the gold standard to go to. And I think having that parallel vision actually helps patients get better faster. Uh, it just in the same way, I wouldn't expect a physical therapist to be an expert in the pharmacology of managing something like gout, I wouldn't expect the primary care physician to be an expert in uh, hands-on treatment for rehabilitating a set ankle sprain or something like that. You should kind of know where that skill set lies and where the other person's uh, ability to, to take over that case can really help the patient. And, and that communication is essential for that. Yeah. Um, but I imagine that works very well, mostly and goes wrong oftentimes as well. Uh, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think you can see it go both ways. Um, sometimes patients will come in and they'll have found physical therapy far later than would be ideal because they've tried lots of other types of management first for like, their symptoms. Like what? Give me like an example or two. So the classic example is something that we treat all the time. Physical therapists probably see more low back pain than anything else. I think it's the number one primary care complaint in Absolutely. the world as well too. And so a typical patient pathway will be you wake up with an acute episode of low back pain and low back pain is scary. It means you can't really function or move and it takes over everything so they often will go straight to urgent care primary care or often even to the emergency room but what tends to happen there is if we're not getting that good communication that referral they'll be given a painkiller and a muscle relaxant and sent home what's wrong with that so the problem there being it can sometimes take the, take the edge off the pain but the way that back pain works is it's very rarely generated by a specific um anatomical dysfunction it's usually the way your system is working around it inhibition of your abdominal musculature uh, a hip not moving the right way a joint not moving the right way and so it'll take the edge off of it but it won't actually get the person up and moving again one of the basic principles of something like low back pain is you have to introduce safe and easy movement as quickly as possible they used to do bed rest for it people never got better hmm. so i often see patients who have gone through multiple uh, providers have gotten lots of different pain medication and haven't started moving and haven't started to resolve this dysfunction. So they come in many weeks later and it takes a lot longer to undo some of these, these problems. Now, when you talk about that communication, something like back pain can also have that medical component. You could have a disc compression of a nerve root, an acute flare. You could even have a potential injury to the spine in severe and more rare cases, in which case, it's really good to have that open communication. In a perfect scenario, the person would come in either to PT or to primary care, immediately get to physical therapy, start treatment, and then if they need something on board like a steroid, or if we're worried about a greater injury where we're thinking about, okay, is there something here that's outside of this scope, to have that good communication back and forth so they can go to their primary, uh, get 
you know, an appropriate steroid, get an appropriate image, or go to ortho and get something looked at from a safety perspective. Um, and that's a really harmonious relationship when it works that way. Yeah. Do you ever disagree on, uh, you know, treatment plan uh, with, with a PCP or a surgeon or uh, any sort of specialist neurology or anything like that? Well, that's a loaded question. I think um, the, my favorite, do you favorite, ever agree? Do that? I ever agree? Absolutely. All the time. No. So my favorite um, referral to physical therapy is when they simply give us the, uh, the referral pad that says evaluate and treat. They know it's a musculoskeletal thing. They've ruled out the complex medical condition and they say, you go figure it out. What's interesting is we'll often see diagnosis of, say, shoulder pain when you're having a nerve root impingement in the neck, and it manifests as a painful shoulder. It hurts to move it. But when we really start to break things down, you look for what the source of that dysfunction is. And so I look at everyone who comes in. I appreciate you know what the referring provider is saying as a diagnosis, and I take that and, and into my... Um, clinical reasoning. And then I also want to see them for myself because there's a lot of uh, interplay between uh, regions in the body and we want to make sure we're treating the right thing to solve that problem. Yeah. You're always, uh, at least with me. Um, and I know in your stories with your patients, you're always, I'm like, Oh, I got elbow pain. And you're like, all right, let me see your other side of your body's ribs. Or uh, I have uh, ankle pain. Well, let's start at the neck and or, you know, I'm kind of exaggerating, but not really because you're not uh, in the business of chasing the pain. You're in the business of finding the root cause of the problem. And through experience, you find things that uh, manifest one way, but it's coming from somewhere else. Absolutely. And I think that's it's different ways of looking at how the body works together. But we often find the, the symptom. Uh, that's the thing that hurts. And then the driver of that symptom. And so... Uh, one of the classic presentations in the body is if you have something that's too mobile and something that's not mobile enough, oftentimes the thing that's not moving is not going to feel anything. It's just a sort of stuck area. Maybe you have a rib that's not moving very well in the back. You don't feel it, but because of that mobility change in that, uh, in the joints on the front and the back of the body there, you'll have a lot of anterior chest pain because the rib on the front is moving too much. You came in and you said, hey, you've got pain around the rib in your chest and we just worked on that area. You never get better because you never got the thing moving that wasn't moving. So there's a lot of that um, uh, interdependence of how things work together. Now, the hard thing is, too, um, you have to have somebody who's going to look at those relationships. And so um, not every practitioner in any field does it the same way. Um, and that's something that we do specialize in and so it's not uncommon to say go to somebody for shoulder pain and they'll start doing shoulder exercises with you if they don't take that extra step to really dive in and evaluate everything the shoulder attaches to sometimes you can miss uh, where the actual source of the problem is and so you got to really know your referral sources pretty well and know what they're good at and what they do yeah um it's i love hearing you break it down like that because i've heard you break it down like that many times before and you know some professors of ours in our manual therapy class as well um talk about the ways in which like you just said if you know if you're if the front of your rib is moving too much it might be pain there but the problem is you're stuck on the back but when you're actually going about it it kind of seems like magic when 
I got wrist pain and then you're working on my shoulder and I'm like, you didn't touch my wrist, touch my wrist, <laughs> make it, make the wrist feel better. Uh, and you're like, yeah, give me a second. Uh, and just thinking about it in those ways just makes it seem like less magic and just more like, uh, you know, f- anatomy and physiology working together. And, and that brings up an interesting point. I think uh, a huge role in what we do is we talked about the whole returning to function and participation as a foundation of what physical therapy is. Uh, one of the most important things I think I do on a daily basis is talk to patients and educate them about what's going on. Uh, a lot of the new research has shown that pain is really multifaceted. So we have a stimulus that we receive at the nerve ending, it comes up to the brain, and then ultimately the brain decides what to do with that stimulus, and the output is actually what we have as pain. So the nervous system plays a huge role here, and then we have the interplay of the body, the nervous system, and then all the cognitive uh, changes that can happen with it. So when you're in chronic pain, for instance, your body physically interacts differently with the world. You interpret those signals in a different way, and when you're in that moment, it can become pretty scary, and you can have dysfunctions that you don't understand. This pain should be simple. You touch something that's you know a hot burner, and, and it hurts. There was the source of pain. There's the burn. Now I understand why my hand hurts, right? If you rolled over wrong in the night, and you wake up, and you have crippling back pain, there's not that connection as to what happened in your body, and that can be pretty scary. So understanding what that is and and trying to educate patients and also you know other providers about that um, is really important. I think it can be really empowering for the patient too because no matter what your dysfunction, if it's a simple thing that, hey, we can solve this with a couple treatments, we'll get a joint moving better and it will never bother you again versus a chronic degenerative thing that will be with you for life. If you understand what's going on, you can take control of your care you tend to do really well. Um, and like I said, the goal is not to solve and, or not to fix things, quote unquote. Say you come to me with a spinal cord injury, I'm not gonna make you, uh, I'm not gonna heal your spine, but I can help you interact with that world in a way that lets you take charge. And once patients make that transition and understand that ownership over their body and their problem, uh, you see some pretty dramatic changes. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and, and quite beautiful. I know we've talked about in the past um, people coming to you and being helpless or feeling helpless, I should say, because they've been to a number of providers that haven't been able to help them. And they've told them straight up, uh, there's nothing more I can do for you. Or I don't think you're going to get better from this. Or uh, that's just how you are now type thing. Um, and that even just a simple putting it in their mind that you're there to help and you probably can help. Um, and here's the plan of how we're going to do it. It's not going to be a cure, but we're going to go in the right direction. Um, then that just mentally is a, is a huge, uh, asset to enacting treatment. And I think a huge part of the healing process is having someone to listen to you. And I think physical therapists are extremely lucky as a profession in the sense that we get to spend, at least in my practice, I get a whole 30 minutes with you. So I get to work through things and we get to solve problems and we get to learn more about you as a patient and to really understand the whole person during that treatment session. Uh, one of the biggest complaints I get is I'll have patients go to physicians who are 
extremely good at what they do. They're phenomenal. They're gifted, but they have five minutes with a person, 10 minutes tops. And it's hard to get all those questions answered. Right. You can't even be good at your job if you don't have time to do it. Exactly. It's hard to remember all the things you meant to ask. You don't get to really educate the patient. You say, Oh, you have X, Y, and Z problem. Here's your diagnosis. Here's where you go. And then they get the scary diagnosis and no explanation as to what it means. I think even in a 30 minute session, I'll take somebody who's just gotten an MRI of their neck and they have a lot of say degenerative changes and you read those words and you go to Google and you can freak yourself out. Absolutely. So I'll sit with them for 10, 15 minutes and we'll talk about everything on that image, what it means, what's normal, what's not normal, what can be done about it, how it's going to affect them and try to empower them to say, Hey, you're more than just this piece of paper here. And, And that can be a really powerful healing tool. Yeah, and that's uh, another good uh, transition. We're doing great with our transitions right now. Because um, you talked about uh, understanding the whole person. You talked about having a lot of time to listen to them, but also um, educate as well. And I know right now you're doing a lot of education in terms of like uh, COVID and coronavirus, um, infectious disease stuff, which isn't even you know what you got into it for. But... Um, that's just kind of cool that that's not even really within the specific realm of your profession, but you're still, um, I guess, using the opportunity to, to um, educate in, in other ways that have to do with people's health care and have to do with their, their um, long-term outcomes. Um, in terms of listening to the whole person, understanding the whole person and, and getting holistic with your treatment. I think people, when they hear holistic, they think you're using crystals and essential oils and stuff. Uh, for the most part, uh, probably the general public thinks that. Sure. Or I, I at least I've, at least brings that those images up in their mind. Yeah, I, I, I get that, that sense sometimes, yeah. But um, I kind of want to talk more about integrating some of the stuff that we talked about before, is understanding at least the fundamentals of disease processes and medical issues and incorporating them in your practice because um, I just see I'm almost there and connecting all the dots but I'm sure you're going to be better at this than I um, of chronic disease whether it be cardiovascular disease metabolic health mental health um, neurologic anything um, that people suffer from on a regular basis and how does that kind of incorporate into your practice? How can you use the tools that you have to help people with those things other than just referring them to their respective specialist or their primary care doctor? So that's a great question. I think uh, physical therapy often treats people with chronic conditions and, and that's sort of our bread and butter, to be honest. What you'll tend to find is you want the person to see the the right provider to give the treatment that they need at the time. So say a cardiovascular problem, you want them to have uh, a cardiologist, a primary care um, physician on board to help manage the the medication and to help make sure that there's no further problems. And, you know, uh, there's, there's myriad ways this manifests. You want, you want to treat that actual medical condition But the truth of it is, then the person leaves and they have to go and interact with their world. They have to live their lives. And if you've gotten um, 
treatment for that, you still need to get back to living as a person. And so what physical therapy can do is find what those challenges are to interacting with your world. So say you had to get uh, a bypass surgery for your heart, right? Mm -hmm. you, you've had a cardiovascular disease. It's culminated in a, in a pretty massive surgery. And then you get this done medically speaking, you're managing these, um, the sequela with medication. Um, and then they're done, but they go back to their lives and now they have the physical consequence from the surgery. So, you know, movement of the, the, the chest is, is not good because you've actually, you know, had a surgery, you've cut into those tissues, yeah. the shoulders and neck are affected that can create pain that can create fear of movement dysfunction. You've also taken somebody who has a typical baseline of activity and who has completely changed their lives. They've been, you know, on bed rest while their sternum heals. And so now you need somebody who can play the role of educating them as to how do you start to move safely? There's specific uh, areas where physical therapists work in, in cardiac rehab, specifically where hmm. you actually do graded exercise to start to push that cardiovascular system in order to make a physiological change so that they can get back to levels of basic activity where they can function without fear of overworking that uh, already stressed system. And then if you make it out to the outpatient clinic, we're looking at things such as balance and safety with movement and space and any mechanical problems or musculoskeletal problems that have developed because of how you've changed all these, these patterns. And, pardon me, in your day. So there's a lot more to the care than just that um, initial diagnosis. And I think that's something that physical therapy and medical doctors can work well in, in uh, conjunction with to get people functioning better again. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a, I guess, a, an interesting and enlightening experience I've had over the last couple of years. Um, because I've been a bad patient and I and in realizing that uh, and I'll explain what I'm talking about in a second but it's it's given me some insights into how people I'm not calling people bad patients but I'm just saying how things can get worse and worse over the course of time because um, I've had a number of just little tweaks of muscles here and there or stuck joints or whatever it is that I've either come to you with because I know you or I haven't <laughs> And that's sometimes when I don't go to you with something that's obvious that I could go to you. Um, it makes me think like, wow, why am I not going to get this treated? Am I in part ashamed that I hurt my back? Am I, um, you know, don't want to be inconvenienced by driving to your place and, uh, and talking about, uh, the issue and then having, then you're going to give me some exercises to do. And then I'm going to either have to do them or tell you that I didn't do them. Uh, and these are all issues that I could totally see popping up for people, um, in the realm of like health and, and medicine, not having to do with, you know, musculoskeletal disease. Uh, yeah. So I think one of the, one of the things I find often before people understand what physical therapy can do for you is it's often a little bit undervalued as, as uh, a service or a type of treatment. And um, it's, it's one of those things where a lot of us say, oh, I have the normal pain and you can insert anything there. And the normal knee pain, the normal back pain. Right. You say a patient comes to you, you're like, what's right. going on? And you're like, well, any, you know, I got this, this, anything else? Well, you know, my norm, 
everyone's back hurts excruciatingly, right? Exactly. And so yeah. what happens is we get into these patterns of, of sort of rationalizing what's going on with our body and, and making that normal and then not wanting to go through the inconvenience of finding a solution. And typically what happens is it's not the fact that your back hurts that ultimately brings you to me. It's the fact that your back's been hurting for 20 years and now suddenly you can't go work in the garden because it, it, the pain is stopping you or you can't sleep at night anymore. So it's when it spills over into you know, that daily life stuff is when it actually hits that tipping point. Um, hopefully, as the medical field evolves, something that we can uh, instill in the population is the fact that some of this stuff is very much changeable early on if you address it. So you're sitting at work, you've got a crick in your neck, your back's kind of hurting doesn't have to be with you forever. That's something that you can absolutely change and adjust from simply addressing those tissues to how you interact with your work environment. That can be a huge and impactful thing or take something chronic. Yes, our joints do have some wear and tear over time, but if you learn how to actively stretch the musculature around it, how to actively take those chronically inflamed joints from a, from, from a degenerative arthritis and take them through a gentle range of motion, it can dramatically lower your pain through the day and really increase what you can do. So I think it's about making that connection, the understanding of this is what I have and there actually is a way to change it. Um, and that's something that I hope to impart through this interview because it, it can be a pretty powerful tool. Yeah. Let's talk about that um, a little bit more. Let's drill down. Um, because I remember once I just was uh, lifting weights, tweaked my neck a little bit, not too bad, but enough that I started compensating for it immediately or just about immediately. I remember, I think the next day I was driving and you know, when you're driving, you're merging lanes, you got to look over your, your, one of your shoulders. And I didn't turn my neck. I remember I just turned my entire body. You can't see me right now if you're listening, but I'm twisting from my, uh, from my hips rather than from my like shoulder or neck region. Uh, and I was, I, it blew my mind. I was like, whoa, I just, I just took the first step in, uh, having this be a chronic problem because if I'm just going to not allow my neck to feel pain, um, then I'm just going to compensate for it. And then 20 years down the road, I'm, I'm, uh, I can't, can't do my gardening. And so I think the fact that you even realize that is, is a pretty cool body awareness thing. I can't tell you how many patients I've come in with pretty much the exact same challenge. They slept wrong or something. Their neck is feeling funny, lifting weights. And they actually haven't realized that they haven't turned their head to the left for the last <laughs> year because instinctively what our bodies do is it, they do compensate. If we have a tight tissue, we tend to move away from the tightness. If we have a movement that creates pain, we just don't do the movement, but we have a lot of moving parts. And so you can kind of get away with it for a really long time before you get into trouble. And so it can be pretty mind blowing to watch somebody move and say, Hey, like how long have you not been able to turn your head left? And they look at you and say, what are you talking about? And then you show them in a mirror and they go, Oh my goodness. I had no idea. I wasn't turning more than two degrees. You did that to me the other day with my, uh, like kind of thoracic lumbar junction. You just twisted me, right? And you're like, look at how far you go. Look at how not far you go on the left side. Um, it, it is a powerful kind of visual uh, when you can do that to somebody. Um, but sorry, I, I might have cut you off when you're talking about kind of uh, nipping it in the bud early and, and enacting, I guess we'll call it uh, preventive medicine, even though it's, you know, 
it's preventing it from progressing. Absolutely. And I think there's, there's a few things. One, you have to have that awareness that something's wrong. So people often will get pain from something else. So say in your case, you might actually start to get pain in your back or in your shoulder. And that's a prime time to get something looked at. And we may figure out, Hey, you simply got stuck in your neck and this is a pretty solvable and changeable thing. And then as you go through physical therapy treatment, one thing I often see in people is you develop an awareness of your body that you didn't necessarily have. We see all spectrum of it. Some people uh, have a, a highly tuned sense of their selves in space, and some people are incredibly challenged in this area. But no matter where you fall on that spectrum, starting to gain that awareness, starting to gain that awareness of normal movement is actually a really powerful tool because it lets you understand what's a dysfunction, what's just a little bit of stiffness, what's actually a problem that needs to be addressed. And, and it, once again, goes back to the whole idea of it gives you the power back to understand and to, to take care of yourself. Yeah, I love it. Um, I, uh, I'm just seeing so many analogies with, uh, you know, your line of work and, and, um, primary care medicine. Um, do you consider yourself a, or does the law consider you a primary care physician? I know in some ways there's a lot of overlap, like you talked about, but, uh, sorry, not a primary care physician, but a primary care Provider. Provider, thank you. So absolutely. It depends on the state. Some states, you still have to get a referral through a physician to come to a, a physical therapist. But in Colorado, yeah, you said we're, we're a primary care provider. And so um, one of the roles I play is directing patients to the right people. So if you come in, uh, like we talked about, hey, are you in my scope or not? And if not, where do you go and help them make that decision point? And so absolutely, we're on the front lines of, of taking patients in. In fact, you mentioned the whole COVID piece here that's changed all our lives. And one of the interesting pieces that came out of it was determining who are essential workers. And through a lot of the legislative work, it actually came down that physical therapists were, in fact, those essential care providers, even on that very limited scale for simple reasons of, hey, if you come in with X, Y, or Z problem, we want you going to the person who's going to treat it right away instead of flooding the emergency room. We don't want people in the hospitals because we need to keep those beds open. Yeah. And suddenly there was a shift. And I think the value of what we can provide was highlighted um, in the sense that, hey, look, we can actually take people in right away and get them moving in a, in, in a good fashion without having to burden other aspects of that uh, medical care system. Yeah, that's uh, kind of brilliant thinking on... Uh Who's ever part uh, it was that designated that? Because um, yeah, it's the quarantine time was is hard for everybody who was affected by it. Most people were, um, and I imagine even harder if you were already suffering from physical ailments. Um, if you're not getting seen, it's just getting worse, and that could be the door or the you know the pathway to never getting it fixed. Um, and then let's say it's a, an issue that keeps you from moving. You're just that, that much higher risk for developing cardiovascular disease or, you know, a number of different issues, um, down the line, um, kind of back to working with primary care. Um, I guess you, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but is there, let's say a patient goes to a primary care physician, either they're presenting with a, you know, pain or not, or, um, an acute or chronic problem or not, but what can providers do before they even refer to you? How can they screen, you know, in their 
five little minutes that they have with somebody who's there for something else, how can they screen for things that are going to really, you know, benefit the patient down the line before they refer it to you? Um, let's just start with that question. Um, uh, so it's hard to have a, a catch all answer for that, but I think as we're looking at the system, if we present with pain is just thinking about the, uh, the more simplistic model of what, what's causing that dysfunction. So say you come in and, and your shoulder hurts and you watch them move, you know, say, okay, well, you know, what things bother it? Let's watch you reach and see what happens. Right. And so when I'm screening a patient, I'm thinking about what tissues or, or, or what areas of the body are affecting that. So you can, in a fairly short amount of time without even a whole lot of knowledge, start to decide if it's a problem locally or somewhere else and decide if you want to, you know, pursue that further. So you could look at a gentle range of motion. You could palpate the tissues and say, are they tender? Uh, another thing that we really emphasize in our uh, patient care is, is understanding that story. So if it's uh, an insidious onset, they woke up and, you know, one morning they were fine. The next thing started to go wrong. It's probably not a tendon tear, at least not an acute one. There's probably something else in that system that's not working. However, if they were lifting weights and they felt uh, and heard a pop and now they can't raise their arm overhead, that's pretty indicative of a tendon tear. So that, that snippet of a story can really guide you as to what you want to look at. Um, and I think it can really guide you as to where you want to direct a patient next. All too often, I think patients come in with a musculoskeletal type problem and it's partially an insurance issue, but more often than not, they'll get that pain medication and they'll get an x-ray of it even though there was no trauma to the region, you know, a uh, 25-year-old with shoulder pain who didn't fall probably doesn't need an x-ray right away. <laughs> However, this becomes the standard of this is how we do things in case we need an MRI, in case we need X, Y, or Z in the future. We have to check every single one of those boxes. And so the system kind of hamstrings providers in that way too. But also, if you're sending somebody to get those boxes checked to educate them that, hey, this is part of the way that the system works, but also this is likely what those causes are. And here are the people who can help you figure that out. And I think that's a, that's probably the most important thing you can do. Yeah. Do you think, um, that primary care providers, internists or, or family physicians are so used to seeing people who are, um, relatively sick, I guess, and thus, you know, maybe older and, don't move as well already and they're just on their mind is the stuff that's going to kill them sooner rather than later mm. you know the web of organ systems involved and stuff like that um and so thus they're not really that worried when the person walks in their office and they're kind of stiff or they're shuffling or maybe i guess maybe that was a bad example but like you know their shoulders aren't moving. They're they're not turning their neck the right way, or they're not uh, they're you know leaning to one side. It's it's maybe not as much of a um, a visual you know cue to say something's wrong, or you know maybe it's something small is wrong, or maybe it's something that's been chronic and is kind of fine, but could be a lot better. So I think we as providers rely on a lot of pattern recognition. So one thing that's important is um, you don't want to chase things that aren't there. I could take any stranger on the street and probably find a stiffness in their neck, but it doesn't mean you need to treat the neck. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, but if they do have a complaint of pain, um, I think that the most important thing is to figure out like, Hey, 
let's make sure it's not that medical piece. Let's make sure it's not a fracture, uh, a disease process, and then to kind of kick it back to people who will help with that. I think the other thing too is we look at patients who have, you know, uh, an, an elderly patient with scoliosis and disc degeneration, and I think it's too easy to pigeonhole them as, well, that's why you hurt, therefore this is this is what it is. And where the truth of it is, you can actually change how that person moves, um, even in small ways, and actually make their quality of life better, decrease that discomfort and dysfunction a little bit. And so to not immediately write off those chronic things as something that's unchangeable, therefore we don't address it. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that can really give that patient um, a quality of life that, that they weren't able to previously get. The other thing to think about too, is we talk about immediate problems versus uh, longer term problems. If you come in to see a provider and you say have um, some discomfort and as a result, you're just not walking as much, but you're not dying from a medical condition, it doesn't seem like it's that bad. But one thing that we know is uh, a person's ability to ambulate, for instance, is highly tied with um, comorbidities. And um, if, if they start to lose that function, their, their mortality and morbidity rate goes through the roof. It doesn't matter what actually is causing that functional loss. But once you get to older populations, like you have to be able to move and, and that's how our organ systems function. We need blood flow, we need oxygen. And if they start to have that sudden decrease in their function, even if it's something as simple as, oh, we have some arthritis and it's hurting my knee, so I don't go for a walk anymore. Uh, it can have a dramatic impact on the entire organ system down that line, yeah. not to mention mental health and well-being totally. and, and you know, access to the world, essentially. Yeah. I, uh, I just had a good uh, question for you, and then I, I lost my train of thought, but we're actually already over time, so I want to I wanna kind of land this plane and get you out of here because I uh, appreciate your um, coming on the show. Um, so we talked about um, kind of the last thing you were just talking about. It's interesting to me, and I frankly want to talk for a couple more hours on that topic. Um, but maybe we can just dive into it for just a couple minutes and then we'll get you out of here. Um, but you know, what are some of the things that people can be doing to increase their, their health span, health span, meaning, you know, you have your lifespan and then you have your health span. How long are you actually healthy and, and vibrant and vital and, uh, enjoying life? Um, you know, to the extent that you can. Um, so what are things that people can be doing early or maybe resources to direct them to? Is it stability? Is it maintaining muscle mass? Is it cardiovascular health? I'm assuming it's a little bit all those things. Um, you mentioned mental health as well. Um, tell me, how do I stay healthy for the longest amount of time? So you come see your physical therapist forever. Uh, problem oh God. solved. Pay you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that touches on uh, a good point and, and a deeper system problem. The way that the healthcare system is often set up now is to treat a problem. You, you injure something, you go in, you get treatment, the thing gets better, you go on about your day, but that's not life. And so unfortunately, when we're talking about an episode of care, the, the actual system is set up against us for some of those lifelong things. The fact that joints do get some wear and tear, muscles kind of get some wear and tear, our systems slow down, right? Lose muscle mass. Lose muscle mass, you lose bone density. And so globally speaking, the, one of the most important things is to maintain movement. In fact, exercise is one of the few things that we have in the healthcare system that 
physiologically will make an impact and can actually reverse some disease processes. So take uh, a, a metabolic blood sugar problem uh, like diabetes, right? Mm -hmm. If you actually start to exercise, you can physiologically make some change. A pre-diabetic can go to a non-diabetic with the right amount of activity, mm -hmm. whereas the medication management of it, in fact, just treats the symptom of that um, physiological dysfunction, but it won't actually change the underlying physiology. So exercise becomes that one single most important tool for all of us in terms of keeping that health. Now the question is, how do you exercise? How do you maintain that bone and muscle density and mass? Um, you have to find ways to do it safely. So for patients who have no other activity, I mean, simple walking is like one of the best things you can do. If you're ambulatory, doesn't matter what you have, you come in with back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, I don't care. I say, hey, you know what, if nothing else, I want you to go for a walk around your block every day. Like, just get out and move. It's simply the most important thing you can do. Mm -hmm. um, and then we talk about management through the lifespan. So our, our ability to uh, maintain bone density, for instance, slows down. So the only way to mitigate that is to, one, if you haven't built it up in your youth, you better work extra hard to keep it, which means you need things with impact. You need, say, walking. That's going to have your foot strike the ground. It's going to generate force through the body. It's funny because that, that's not that something. Bone. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, it's going to yeah. slow that bone degeneration process. Yeah. I, I, I like the concept that walking is an impact activity, even though I, it's not probably how most people think of it. They would mm -hmm. think impact would be boxing or something. Sure. You know, but it, it's, you're it's, saying it's it, a joint yeah. striking a surface. Simple as yeah. that. And yeah. that's that's uh, bearing weight and yep. it's main, thus it's stimulating bone density to either maintain or, or grow. Absolutely. And so um, what we find in elderly populations is we tend to slow down our systems. We, we get worse balance because the coordination of our vestibular, proprioceptive and visual systems starts to wane a little bit. We're not as crisp with those connections. Um, and people who don't actively practice it actively lose those neural connections. And so you get worse without actively challenging things. Just like working out, if you don't use the muscle or the brain in a certain way, you start to lose that ability to function with it. And so uh, measured practice of these things is super duper important if you don't want to lose the ability to do it. One of the greatest risks to elderly people is actually falls. And so mm -hmm. in order not to fall, you have to have your balance systems working. You actually have to have enough power generation in your muscular system to react to that environment. And you have to have enough mobility so that you can interact with your world. And if any one of those things are compromised, you're in trouble. And that, that fall, while outside of a medical problem, can spell disaster. Typically, if you fall, you have low density. It can lead to a broken hip or pelvis, something like that. And then, you know, mortality rates go through the roof. And so that preventative stuff is really important. Now, outside the healthcare system, um, there's some good ways to do it through, um, there's plenty of groups who do training. Um, I think of uh, Silver Sneakers, they get out and they, they help older adults move. Um, local classes, when those become a thing, a thing again, you know, where you mm -hmm. do yoga, Pilates, something that interests you. But the trick is it has to be movement. It has to be relatively well understood by the person teaching it so you don't do things to you know further exacerbate a problem sure and it has to be something you like doing or else you're not going to do it i can tell you to go do an exercise but it has nothing to do with what you want to do you're not going to do it i'm not going to do it so it has to be something that actually captivates your interest and i think that's something that we miss we say hey 
go for a walk because it's good for your health, but maybe the person hates to walk, but maybe they actually like bird watching. So maybe they go for a hike instead. You have to figure out what that connection is to the person and help them put those pieces together that yes, if I go out in the mountains and watch birds, I'm actually moving and it's good for my health and I'm doing something I care about. Yeah. Um, amazing. You kind of talked about it in relatively general terms. Uh, although like you answered my question fantastically. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of put a plug out there for any specific exercises, maybe ones that you're just, uh, are on your mind right now, knowing full well, or I guess we should have the disclaimer that you're not saying that this is going to cure or prevent anything, but what are some of like maybe a specific two or three exercises that somebody could do? It could be kind of general exercise or very, something very specific if that's what you're thinking. Um, so I think our bodies are pretty good at telling us what is working and what's not working. So I say general movement is good because it's too hard to say if you do X, Y, or Z exercise, it will help you because everybody has a different underlying, you know, anatomy, different underlying, um, physiological problems that they may be facing. So simple, healthy movement, you need something that's going to get your heart rate up. You're going to need something that helps you stretch through movements at your joints and your muscles. And ultimately you need something that's weight bearing. That's, uh, force generating so that you maintain muscle and bone health. So that could be uh, doing yoga, doing Pilates, going for a walk. It could be any myriad. Uh, Basically one of any things, movement you're saying. Any movement, <laughs> yeah. but it, it can be as simple as just go move. And, and sometimes when I get patients in, it doesn't matter. They need somebody to tell them it's actually okay to move, healthy to move and safe to move. And once you bridge that connection, you can, you can start integrating these things. Um, and then there's a thousand resources, especially during the COVID era. Um, so many people have started putting things up on Instagram, Facebook. And the trick is, though, to try these things if they're if of interest to you, but also listen to your body. So if you start doing something, you're like, whoa, I don't think I'm moving very well or that doesn't feel right, to respect that because our body's giving us information for a reason. And then working with somebody who's trained in the area who can help you do it safely and, and, and with good intention. So cool. I love it. I, uh, I don't have a whole lot more to say unless you want to talk about anything we uh, haven't covered yet today. Well, I think I'll just make a quick plug. You know, one of these areas that you can go find some real basic, just general movement information and, and learn a little bit more um, can be that typical Instagram page. And so um, at my clinic, it's physical therapy and injury specialists. We just started putting a few little videos up of how do you do some core stability work? How do you do some shoulder blade movements and things like that to keep your back healthy when you're working and, and other little areas and snippets. And so, um, checking that out, you could go to Instagram. It's Denver P T I S. Um, and you can find some stuff there and there's plenty of other providers who are putting up other quality work too and you can find some ways to help keep you moving yeah i know you turned me on to the prehab guys absolutely which they're, they're fantastic they have great videos accessible they're a little bit more professional in that realm than us but, was, you know, <laughs> I, I utilize yeah. their, their resources all the time they're great yeah yeah they're great and they're uh so that's the prehab guys um probably at the prehab guys and then you are at denver ptis that's that's right yep and that's uh, your website as well, which I'll, I'll plug in the intro. Wonderful. Um, so Denver Physical Therapy Injury Specialists. That's it. It's a mouthful, but it's there. <laughs> nice. Well, um, yeah, man. Thanks a lot. I, I really appreciate it. It was an enlightening uh, 
talk and we, we covered a lot of ground yeah this is a blast thanks for having me and uh, i look forward to doing something like this in the future all right good times Hope you enjoyed hearing a bit about the PT world and a bit about the primary care world from someone with a unique vantage point, kind of on the outside looking in, kind of on the inside infiltrating the world of primary care. In osteopathic med school, we learn a good foundation regarding the the physical human body. So it's always good to speak to and pick the brain of someone with a much deeper fund of knowledge than myself and, of course, years of clinical experience. So thanks to my good amigo, Dr. Mark, and thanks to you all for listening. Um, On Mark's suggestion, we'll play a different song that we wrote here as the outro. And I picked this one for a number of reasons. One, Mark has some great guitar work on this, um, and vocals as well, actually. And it's got one scene in the second verse about a wedding, and it's my wife and I's anniversary tomorrow, so that's nice. Um, Another reason that I picked the song is it's got some kind of weird time signatures going on, which is kind of perfect for this weird time that we're living through right now, and The title of the song is called News is History, so I thought that was also kind of pertinent to uh, life right now. All right, enjoy. See you on the next one. History. I was swishing round the Listerine, preparing for the first date, fearing the worst case, but imagining she's kissing me, I can see how it'll all play out. Rehearse the words I was gonna say as I silently mouthed them. And in the mirror, I comb the bird's nest, flash cologne for the nervousness, and head out to pick her up at six. Upon her request, I approached the porch to give a knock on the door. Before I could, it opened, she kissed my neck and pulled me down to the floor.
was news, now it's history. Her diamond ring was glistening as we stood there, smiling at each other with electricity. All the young ladies shed a tear as we said our vows. All the young men's eyes were dry and minds were in the clouds. So I kissed my bride, looked each other in the eye, ate some goddamn delicious food and danced cause we're alive. And the wedding guests, they all picked up and left To go drink a little more and have some fun in bed But we kept dancing till we're dead What used to be news Is now just history Don't you sing the blues We'll reach the end, you'll see It's history in the bed she's laying next to me Wrinkled like a raisin and her hair is white and wintry She turned to me and said everything she's never said Which was nothing cause she said everything that was in her head And again we locked our eyes Looking at each other, smiling, thinking about our lives And all the times we were surprised Sleepy like too much wine We closed our eyes and sighed What was news is now history and keeps moving down the line